Thanks, Ralph. Ooh, I'm loud. Morning. Morning. Hope you're well. Okay, so if you're a fan of TED, anyone in the room a fan of TED, TED Talks? Yeah? And if you're kind of vaguely interested in uh, education, then you may have heard this story already, but um, I was reminded of, of a story that Ken Robinson tells of a six-year-old girl who's not particularly engaged at school, and one week uh, in a drawing class, the teacher sees her totally engaged at the back of the class, deep in activity. And so the teacher goes over and says, oh, let's call her Lucy. Lucy, what, you know, what, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher considers this for a moment and says, oh, uh, well, that's interesting, Lucy. No one really knows what God looks like, to which Lucy said, they will in a minute. <laughs> We've all got a picture of God. We come here together because we've got shared values and core truths that we would you know, we say we've signed up for. But actually, we, we each have an individual picture of God. And when I think about Jesus and what he came to do, his ministry was about challenging and often radically altering the picture that individuals had, had drawn in their minds of God. He came to totally, totally reframe the way that they, they thought it was between them and God. So this morning we're looking at this, this guy, this rich young ruler, and I feel like I've got a bit of a bum deal really because up till now it's been quite upbeat we've had the leper we've had the paralytic we've had the woman who was afflicted with bleeding we've had the demon possessed man we've had you know all these things and Jesus comes and he encounters them and they go away transformed and jubilant and suddenly now Mark chooses to show us something quite different and here we have somebody who, from the outside, doesn't present any of those type of vulnerabilities. He's, he's, he's quite together. The uncomfortable thing about this passage is that perhaps of all the characters we've met so far, maybe this is the one that we relate to the most. Because actually he's got quite a lot going for him. He's financially secure, and, and with that has come a whole load of other things. He's esteemed in the community. He's, he's, he's a religious scholar. He knows his stuff. He's perceived as a good citizen. He's, he's morally good. Perhaps if we're honest, we can, we can relate to that. We feel like, hmm, I'm doing all the right things. I can, I can come along on a Sunday, and I can engage in the teaching, and do you know what? I think I'm ticking a lot of the boxes. But nevertheless, he, he does sense that something is missing. This man, unlike the other characters that we've met up until now, has an encounter with Jesus. But he doesn't go away transformed, and he doesn't go away jubilant. In fact, he goes away grieved. 
So I want us to just think this morning about well, what's the lesson in this passage? How can we make sure that when we encounter Jesus, we don't go away disappointed and heavy-hearted? So I just want us to look briefly at just some of the assumptions that this man has about God and the way in which Jesus seeks to challenge the picture that he's created of who God is and how he can relate to him. This question, you know, what, what can I do to in- inherit eternal life? I feel like Jesus is a bit harsh. I mean, this guy hasn't had Paul's amazing ta- teaching on sort of justification of faith through grace. Jesus hasn't died yet. So we can sit here quite smugly and say, well, we all know it's not about what we do. Jesus has done it for us. He was living before all this stuff had taken place. So is Jesus harsh in the way that he responds to him? I can imagine Jesus goading him. He knows this man is is a good Jew and he's following the commandments and he's doing everything right. And so Jesus kind of plays with him and he he says, well, you know know the answer as as any good Jew would. You know the answer. Follow the commandments. And he's quick to say, isn't he? Well, I've done that. You can imagine him thinking, yes, I've done that. I've done it since I was a boy. I'm I'm doing all right. I'm doing well. But the assumption that he makes is that faith is just some kind of add-on. The man knows the law, but he's completely missed the point. He thinks that faith can be... I don't know, like, like a cherry on an already pretty good-looking, delicious cake. And there's a real danger if we see Jesus as a complement to the life that we're already making for ourselves. If we think that faith is almost a logical next step, you know, we're building up this pot of moral goodness, and we've accrued that through you know, a, a good upbringing, generally good behavior, good choices. Well, Christianity just seems to align with a lot of that, to what I already think. And so actually, it really just makes sense to be a Christian. The one, you know, I want to make sure I'm not missing out on that last thing. And, And Jesus, it could well be you. When Jesus meets Nicodemus, what's the phrase he uses? You've got to be born again. The idea that we can sort of add Jesus to the rest of our goodness is preposterous. And that's why Jesus says sternly, you know, why do you call me good? Obviously he's good. He knows he's good. But he knows that this is a completely wrong measure. Only God is good. And what we see in the New Testament is that people come to Jesus time and time again because on some level, subconsciously, they know they're not good. But they know that there's something about Jesus that can address that. I think another reason why he goes away heavy-hearted is because he assumed that Jesus wouldn't get personal. And maybe you struggle with that. that this man was hoping for an academic exchange. He was happy with the teaching. 
happy with the law. And he thought by discussing that, he could, he could keep Jesus out there at arm's length. But if you know anything about Jesus, you'll know that with him it is always personal. It's always personal. And so Jesus quickly moves from the external, the behaviors, the things we're doing to please, and he addresses the heart. So verse 21, Mark says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. So Jesus cares deeply for this person, as he does for us. He sees into each heart and he sees the things that are important to us. And actually this passage isn't really about the money, is it? Because we know from our own experience that money's never about money. It's about a whole load of other things. And what Jesus is interested in is what this money has come to represent for this man. It's his security. It's something that he's shaped his identity on. It's his source of feeling like he's, he's good. He's doing all right. And Jesus is confrontational. He's challenging the whole basis upon which this man's life is built. Another reason why he goes away heavy-hearted is that he assumed that there'd be nothing disruptive about the encounter. He assumed Jesus wasn't going to disrupt his life. Because what Jesus invites him to do is, is pretty dramatic, isn't it? it? It seems a drastic measure. And it's easy to judge this man. But honestly, what would our response be to this? You know, if you ask God with an open heart, what do you require of me? And he said, give everything away. All that material stuff you love and you've accumulated put it to one side and because and I, I feel like it's holding you back and I feel like there's something about this free life that I came to give you that you're not quite accessing. I think we'd like to think that we would say, yep, lead the way. But actually we enjoy our comfort and the thought of that is unpalatable. Sometimes what Jesus asks of us is unpalatable. Jesus is not saying here that his love has conditions attached to it. If you want eternal life, you've got to give everything away. That's the deal. And he's, he's not issuing an ultimatum either. But rather he's saying, I love you. And this is going to hurt. It is going to hurt. But actually, if you don't lay it down... It's forever going to keep you from the kingdom of God. This thing that you've allowed to shape you and to make you feel good as a substitute for me, that's, that's the opposite of, 
of freedom and the wholeness that I came to bring. Tim Keller talks about this in, in, in terms of a power struggle with God. God's saying, he, you know, I, I want that thing, the most important thing that causes you to think you'll have a life of power and joy apart from me. I think it's really important for each of us that we recognize what that thing is. What is that thing that causes us to think we will have a life of power and joy apart from God? So it's from a position of love that this all takes place. It's the same for us. When, when we say yes to the cross of Christ and all that that means, we're implicitly saying yes to a lot of other things, aren't we? We're saying yes to God's love, to his guidance, his provision, his faithfulness. But we are also saying yes to his destruction and his disturbance of our comfort. And that's nothing to do with conditional love. It, it just can't be any other way. You see, if we're serious about being imitators of Christ, rather than part of a Christian club, then inevitably there will be things in our lives that Jesus just puts a finger on. I had a really strong picture as I was preparing for today of a bruise. I'm sure everybody's had a bruise. And the thing about bruises is when, when you first get them, it's quite painful, but then the body's amazing, isn't it? And quite quickly, it's, it's not really hurting anymore. And, and you can see it there. But were somebody to come up and apply pressure, you'd suddenly be reminded that it, that it was there. It's that, you know, it's not agony, but it's that just, like, oh, okay, yeah, there's still something going on there. And I think that's often what, what Jesus does with us. You know, that bruise, whatever it is for you, that's, you know, up under the sleeve and no one can see it. And it's maybe been there a while. And he will sometimes come and just apply a bit of pressure. Jesus is saying to all of us, as he was to this man, I look at you and I love you. I absolutely love you, but you have to put me first. And that means not saying you put me first, but really putting me first. Trust me. Let go of the thing that feels so important, so integral, to who you are, and you can fill in the gap here. That might be money, plenty of it, not enough of it. Work, sex, being a certain shape or size. Whatever that thing is, he's saying, let, let go of it, let me decide what you need. And then come and follow me, and see what kind of life I'm, I promise you. You see, that is the way Jesus relates to us. And sometimes it will feel confrontational. 
Sometimes it might sadden us a bit. Sometimes it, it will feel sacrificial. But Jesus is committed to transforming us to be like him. In Philippians 1 we read, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And in 2 Corinthians, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Well, what was his likeness? What's Jesus like? Well, his whole ministry was about giving out, giving away, giving up his life. He actually gave glory to the Father because he kept his trust, his security, and his identity firmly rooted in the Father. And you know what? When we do the same, that is worship. That brings glory to God. When we refuse to let the narratives, the nonsense of the world, tell us what needs to be our priorities. There's plenty that the Bible has to say about money. Matthew says, these things, you know, money, concerns about having or not having, those things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Paul teaches in Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And he says, let's teach those who are rich not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. In Proverbs, we're told to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, not to depend on our own understanding, to honor God with our wealth. There's nothing in the Bible that says we've all got to give everything away. Money's a gift, isn't it? We, we need to be good stewards of it. But it's interesting to reflect as a fairly comfortable group of people what money's come to represent for each of us. What's its relationship with our self-esteem or our anxiety levels, our feelings of belonging and succeeding in the world? The problem with money if we don't keep it in its proper place, is that it can lead us down the path of self-sufficiency. It allows us to, to meet quite a lot of our own needs. And slowly we begin to forget about the one who promises to provide everything for us because we won't allow ourselves to be in a position of vulnerability or lack. Perhaps some of us, actually, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, perhaps you find the whole notion of dependency upon God distasteful. That actually God's, God's resourced you and you're being wise with that. And actually, you're doing well. You're doing well with the things that you have. You're providing for yourself, your family.
God wants our dependence because it goes hand in hand with our freedom in him. What we see from Jesus is overwhelming generosity. If you were here a few weeks ago when, when we took that collection, that kind of instinctive response for, for the woman who's um, had, had a f- fire in her house, were you here? Um, I don't know about you, but I just felt a palatable like, just sense of excitement in here as people just didn't overthink it and just, and just heard about something and, and just gave them money. And, and, I, and I'll be honest, I don't often feel that in church when it comes to giving, up, giving away my money. I, I want to be, I want to be a more generous giver. But in that moment, something switched on for me and I thought, this is the kingdom of God right here. This is what it is. When actually we use our money for something that God has, has said, here's a need and you can step into it. And it was exciting, wasn't it? Wasn't it, be, wasn't it good to be part of that? There's this magazine called Success Magazine and I was reading this comedy article about 10, 10 keys to success in life. And in the first, the first sort of top three points, one of them was this, don't depend on anyone, not even your partner, your family or your friends. They're busy sorting out their own needs. This is the world we're in. We're in a world that says it's all about self-sufficiency. But actually, Jesus calls us to a generous, open-hearted existence. And the sad thing about this passage is the guy couldn't really understand the whole concept of, of treasure in heaven. He couldn't bring himself to trade what he had in the here and now for what he could inherit eternally. And I think if we're honest, we we maybe struggle with that sometimes. If we've got a nice life, perhaps we don't want to put that down. Because the treasure in heaven is, is Christ. The Bible says one day we will see him face to face. Can't even begin to imagine what that is going to be like to see Christ face to face. But it's not just that, it's, it's that we're his treasure too. We're his treasure. The wonderful thing is that the Holy Spirit is alive and at work within each of us. And the Holy Spirit will happily show us the things that are threatening to take the place of Christ in our lives. And actually we can't see them without the Holy Spirit because they're not the obvious things that we recognize, they're the things that subtly encroach upon us. That's why we need God's Spirit to reveal them. You might be here this morning feeling a bit like that young man that actually this Christianity is more than you'd expected. It's more than you signed up for. 
And you maybe thought that like this young man we meet here and Mark, that Jesus is he's another way to be good. He's, he's a great addition. But perhaps you'd hoped, you'd assumed that he wasn't going to get too personal with you. He wasn't going to disrupt your life and he certainly wasn't going to make demands of you. But Jesus is unapologetic about the fact that he wants to be what we treasure most. He just won't be an add-on, a supplement, second place. He loves us with an extravagant, unending, unconditional love. And he wants to demonstrate the life that's available to us if we'll only treasure him and put him first. I just want to finish with um, a quote from an American pastor called John Piper. He's quite known for saying things that are quite uh, confrontational. But this really challenged me. The critical question for our generation, for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? I think the answer to that shows us where our treasure is. And Jesus is saying this morning, come back to me. The things that have gone awry, the things that have got out of sync, those priorities, let's reorder them this morning. Not because I love you any less if you don't, but because I want you whole, I want you free, I want you living this, I want others around you to see the way you're living and to be surprised about it and to be confused about it and to come to me because of it. Holy Spirit, I thank you for your presence here. And collectively, we just we want to give you permission to press on the bruise. Show us the areas where we are not putting you first. God, it's our desire to put you first. But we can so quickly get distracted. Speak to us, God. Shine a light on those things. we bless you that you're committed to transforming us God always from a position of deep love <laughs>